Lest I forget thine agony, lead me to Calvary. What a beautiful song to celebrate with communion. Well, if you were aware of your calendar this past week, you know that Friday was what? Valentine's Day. Uh, Valentine's Day is a season of love that for many uh, comes with a healthy price tag. In fact, the average amount spent on that special someone, according to bank rate, is about $152 if you were born before 1997. Now, if you were born after that and you're part of Generation Z, like or both of my daughters are, the number jumps to as high as $250 for men, but the average woman spends $57. Now, most of you women would say, yeah, uh, you need us a whole lot more than we need you guys. <laughs> but the point is, when you love someone, there is an intrinsic script written into our DNA to express, I love you. You know, this morning as we celebrate in the worship, we celebrate the heart of God expressed in His most expressive and most expensive gift of all, in the love He gave us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's because of Him that we even have a possibility of a relationship with our expressive Creator. And that relationship, most of you have come to know, is worth everything. Ironically, as uh, Cheryl and I were getting ready for work one day last week, she uh, listens in the morning to a mix on Pandora between country and Christian music. And there was a song that came on that just kind of, as they say in the South, uh, it's stuck in my craw and it fits with our sermon this morning. It's a song by Marin Morris called The Bones. And it says this, We're in the home stretch of the hard times, we took a hard left, but we're all right. Yeah, life can sure try to put love through it, but we built this right, and we're never going to move it. When the bones are good, the rest don't matter. When the paint could peel, the glass could shatter. Let it rain, because you and I remain the same. When there ain't a crack in the foundation. Baby, I know any storm we're facing will blow right over while we stay put. The house don't fall when the bones are good. Call it dumb luck, but baby, you and I can't mess it up, although it seems at times we try. It don't always go the way we planned it, but the wolves came and went, and we're still standing. Because the house, when the bones are good, the rest don't matter. The paint could peel, the glass could shatter. You know, at the heart of that song is a truth. If the bones are good, if the foundation isn't cracked, the house will stand. But then there are those times in life, if we're honest, Times when we feel like the cracks are beginning to form and beginning to show, and the house begins to suffer. And so, some of you this morning, married and unmarried, single or, or even dating, you know broken hearts hurt deeply. Psychologist Michelle Roya Rad remarked in a recent study that I read humans are multifaceted and are made up of many layers. It starts with the most dense and physical coding, but you move through it to the most uh, transparent ones. We are physical, emotional, mental, intellectual, and this is a secular writer that recognizes this. She says, above all, spiritual beings. We need to learn to go beyond what our senses can see, hear, feel, and touch, and pay attention to the deep. Now, what does all that have to do 
with the study that we're in of Vision 2020 and Nehemiah. And with Nehemiah 8 that we're going to be in this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn there. It has this. For the first seven chapters of Nehemiah's account, he's been leading as the people rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. But as we reach the eighth chapter, the wall is done. And yet we've got several more chapters in Nehemiah's account to go. As God knows, and as Nehemiah is coming to learn, the work is really only truly beginning. You see, God didn't need to just build a physical structure to protect his people. He never needed stones that were stacked or towers that were built to protect the people that were the the apple of his eye. What God is doing as stones are stacked and towers are built is he's trying to get to the heart of what matters most to him. God's primary construction project is the human heart, the heart of the nation. And friends, let me just tell you, God has never been in to do superficial works. He doesn't just make people look good on the outside for a short time. He knows we need to learn to go beyond what our senses, as the psychiatrist said, what we can see, hear, touch, and feel, and pay attention to the deep. And the people have been sensing that. And all the work they've done that Nehemiah is directing, they know that they can set it all up and have all the stones in place. But for these people that have returned after years and generations of exile, if they're going to rebuild it all, if their hearts are going to be rebuilt, it's got to be done on the word of God. And they want so much to hear God's word because they know it's not mortar that's going to hold. It's not cement that's going to hold them together. It's going to be God's truth. It gets to the heart of foundational matters and we, like they, need to own it. The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 that the word of God is living and active Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. You see, God's word is the ground-penetrating radar to make sure that our structure, our foundation is secure in him. And I want you to catch this morning... Very simply, what I think the, the, the Israelites learned under the direction of Nehemiah and Ezra, but what was really on God's heart. The first thing I want you to catch is this, is that thirsting for God, thirsting for God is at the core of having a restored heart. Look with me in Scripture, if you would, at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. The Scripture there says, when the seventh month came, and if you love the Jewish calendar, you know this is the the, the month of Tishrei, somewhere around October, September. It says this, it came and the Israelites had settled in their towns. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. They read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law 
verse 4. Ezra, the teacher of the law, he stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him at his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Micaiah, Hashem, Hashbarana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Did you notice at the start of that? Who wanted to hear the word of God? It was the people. And where were they gathered? They were gathered in the street at the water gate. In fact, as I looked into this this week, a lot of commentaries refer to what's happening here as the Watergate revival. Now, for those of you that live through Watergate, that will ring another bell for you. But the people known as the Gibeonites in the Old Testament were tasked with taking water from the wells outside of this gate through this water gate into the temple where it would be used for ceremonial washing of the priest's hands, of the sacrifices that were presented before God. And by this water gate, there was a spacious part of land in front of them. And the people didn't enter into the elaborate gate of the, tem- or the building of the temple. They didn't celebrate in a great sanctuary or cathedral. They were in the street thirsting for God. You know, we are truly blessed when we come into this building to worship each Lord's Day. But the ideal church service, friends, it's not defined by the condition of the roof over our head or the comfort level of our chairs or the HVAC of the audio and visual technology, the the color or the condition of our carpet and walls or how clean our windows are. Every one of those things, as important as they are, Friends, they're not the most important thing. In fact, it seems that the church had more power before the church ever had power to begin with. As we speak this morning, there are Christians meeting on streets, in huts, in houses, in barns that are filled with the power of the Spirit of God, while others will meet in impressive multi-million dollar structures that would not know the power of the Spirit of God if it fell among them. A fire, friends, could come and destroy the building that we're worshiping in this morning, but we could still have an ideal church service. But for that to happen, we have to come thirsting for God to have a restored heart. Sometimes I'll hear people say, but but Bill, the, the Bible, it's just so hard to understand. I mean, I, I started my devotions, I hit the book of Leviticus, and I'm lost. Or, or somebody told me I should start in Revelation, and I was confused from the start. Bill, the Bible is just so difficult, and the commands of God are just such a burden on life. But I believe if you truly get into God's Word, and you start to experience the truth of God's word, you'll understand what John said when he said in 1 John 5, 3, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. You see, you begin to realize the freedom, the liberty, the joy, the expression we have when God's word becomes a part of your life. 
and that thirst. It's, it's so beautiful because the more you get of God's word, and Doug Fisher, he can attest to this because we, we chat back and forth by text all the time. The more you get into God's word, the thirstier for God's word you get. I want you to hear what the psalmist had to say in, in Psalm 19. This was in my devotions this past week, and I thought, God, you, you are so good at timing these things with, with the messages that I'm preparing for you. Psalm seven, or 19, verse 7 and through 9 say, The law of the Lord is perfect, and it refreshes the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Look at these benefits. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Anybody here need a little more joy in their life this morning? The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. So many blessings coming from God's Word. And friends, God caused the Bible to be written for the express purpose of revealing a greater than Valentine's love for you and me, to be written for the purpose of us understanding His plan of redemption. He caused the book to be written so that he might make his everlasting laws known to us as his children, that they might have a great wisdom that live within us to guide us and his great love to comfort us in the distress that we face in this life. Friends, without the Bible, this world would be a very dark and foreboding place indeed. The Bible easily qualifies as the only book of God's revelation in this world. And I know there's many Bibles for many different religions in this world. In fact, the Koran of Islam, the Buddhist canon of sacred scripture, the, the Zoroastrian, Zendra, Avesta, they, they all begin with some flashes of light, but they end in utter darkness. And even the most casual observer of the Word of God will discover that God's Word is radically different. It is the only book that offers redemption. It is the only book that points us to the way in our dilemma. And John would write in his gospel, at the end of his gospel, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life. In his name. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people came to Nehemiah and to Ezra, the teacher of the law, and they said, we want to hear from God. We want to hear God's law proclaimed because it's only by pursuing him we know that our hearts can be rebuilt. It's only by God's word that our nation will be restored and every man, woman, and child who are able to understand, they listen to Ezra, read from the scripture. And did you see how long they listened? It said they listened from sunrise until noon, from breakfast until lunch. Six hours they listened and it says they listened attentively. They weren't bored they weren't distracted from it. They were excited to hear God's word. And shame on us for thinking that an hour and five minutes sometimes is too long to sit and listen to the word of God. 
Because before one Aleph, Beit, Gimel, or Dalit was read from the Hebrew text, the people had said it in verse 5, what did they do? They all stood up, which we do, and I ask you to do as I read God's word before we pray. And what a beautiful time to see the people respond, amen and amen. But that wasn't all that they did. Friends, we have the Bible now but we may not always have it. You see, we, we may own it in this day and culture, but does the Bible really own us? You see, the prophet Amos had to warn his people of Israel back in the Old Testament in Amos 8:11, when the Lord said, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I'll send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. And God's people had to wait 400 years in silence from the end of the Old Testament to the birth of Jesus in the New Testament that we have because they refused to listen to God's word and to God's voice. And too many today live in a time of famine because we refuse to sincerely thirst for the word of the Lord. But there's no way, friends, to rebuild a heart without it. Now here's the second thing. It's not just thirsting for God's word. It's working with God's word that is an absolute necessity for a refreshed heart. Working with God's word. Go back in Nehemiah 8 and look in verse 7 with me and we'll start there. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, and I could read these names, but I'm just going to skip down, instructed the people in the Lord while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the Lord, the law of God, making it clear and giving it meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not weep or mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said in verse 10, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. And do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people and said to them, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Verse 12, all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The Levites made application as it was read and these Jewish people heard the word of God and they wept. You know, I think one of the greatest tragedies among believers today is how we've allowed for the word of God to, to, to become decreased in its authority within our individual lives and in our churches. The erosion of respect for the thus saith the Lord of Scripture. And there are liberal preachers today declaring in Springfield that, that the Bible is, is not truly the word of God. That it's riddled with errors and, and really it was written for people of another day and era. But we have the Holy Spirit to teach us only what we need today. Even though the scripture itself says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all of scripture is God-breathed. 
There are those who say that, that God's word is not enough. But when God's word, friends, is believed and it's taught, the unbeliever is convicted by the Holy Spirit as well as the believer is nourished with God's truth. And the church is unified as Jesus Christ is honored. Psalm 119, verse 165 says, Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. We celebrate as we read and study the Word of God. You know, Temple University in Philadelphia, one of my favorite stories, uh, it was founded by a fellow by the name of Russell H. Conwell. And he started a night school originally uh, that became Temple University, but he poured $18 million dollars into the construction of the school. Money that he got as he went throughout the country speaking one message over and over and over again. Acres of diamonds, he called it. He gave that same speech 6,000 times. He earned $18 million and he simply said, each of us have enough oil in our own backyard, so to speak, to make an abundant living in our lives. In other words, if we stop and we look at what God has blessed us with already, we have so much, but we fail to recognize it. At the heart of that story was a tale he told about a gold and silver mine out in western Nevada. And the man who worked the claim did all he can, could with his pan and shovel and his axe and pick. And he didn't get much out of it, and so he sold it for $11,000. Well, the new owners came in, and the very first uh, mine that they dug, they called it the New Tunnel, and it was so productive, they actually renamed it, and they called it the Comstock Mine, the greatest deposit on this planet of both silver and gold. And when they sold it, 33 years later, they sold it for $300 million. And he entitled this story, The Man Who Sold Out Too Soon. You know, sometimes we sell out too soon. When it comes to the Word of God, we need to study God's Word to get deeper into God's Word so that God's Word gets deeper into us. And there are treasures, as the book of Proverbs would say, that show us God's wisdom is worth more than the finest rubies and diamonds. It gets into us. And I love what the Levites did in verse 8. Did you see what it said? They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving its meaning. So that the people understood what was being read. And the more they understood God's word, the more it penetrated their heart. The more it moved them to tears because they realized they weren't living up to the blessing. They weren't living up to the standard that God had prepared for them. Verse 10, Nehemiah tells them to go and enjoy the choice food and sweet drinks. To sin and to share with those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord, he said, and don't grieve. And we get that beautiful scripture, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I see so many believers today struggling with the same thing that others in this world are struggling with, health-wise, financially, relationally, and they should be meeting that with the joy of the Lord as their strength. But they're disconnected from the word. And they're disconnected from the joy that God has planned. The people of Israel, they quit weeping. And they begin to have a feast. And in fact, they actually celebrate what the Bible will, come, uh, will call the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Trumpets. And we'll get into that a little next week, perhaps. And the reason they celebrate is because they now understood the words that have been made known to them. Thirsting for God 
maybe at the core of a restored heart, but actually working with God's word is what refreshes our heart. Not many people have caught this in the Old Testament, but one of the things, when the people cried out for a king to be over them, that the king was warned about and the king had to do, it came in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 through 18. Now we know some of this because God says, when you have a king, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And we look at what happened with Solomon and it's true. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold and when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself. He's to do it on his own paper with his own pen in his own scroll, a copy of this law taken from the Levitical priest. So the king, when he took his throne, was to write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that Torah, those first five books of the Bible. And some of you might journal and you know how actually writing things down helps cement them within your experience and memory and helps you meditate on them. Can you imagine what the king thought as he did that? And can you imagine what it would be like today if our presidents would stop at the start of their administration and write down the first five books of the Bible as they read it? We used to have a Christian bookstore in the town I grew up in uh, called the Berean Bookstore. I don't know if there's still a chain of those out there or not. Uh, but it came from a unique, distinctive group of Christians that met in the city of Berea in the New Testament. In Acts 17.11, it said of them, these Berean Jews were of noble character more than those in Thessalonica because they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. You see, when they went beyond what the preachers said and, and they fed on the word of God themselves and they studied the word of God their hearts, not only were they restored and refreshed, they came to be known of more noble character. And, and, and that's really what I want for us as a family of faith. So if, if, if you're not involved in Sunday school on Sunday morning, oh, Bill, I don't like to hear you teach twice. You preach once, I don't want to sit in your Sunday school on Sunday morning. You know, or I don't like the teacher that I have. Uh, you know, it's hard to get up. Friends, if you're not involved in Sunday morning, if you don't take advantage of the opportunity on Sunday evening to be here for, for Bible study or Wednesday night fellowships or on Thursday morning Bible study with the ladies, friends, you've got to get into God's Word. And the more you study, the more you realize God has a plan to refresh your life and your heart. So take the plunge and get involved. And I promise you will not regret it. Now here's the last piece that I want to share with you. It's not just thirsting for God's word. It's not just working with it. It's actually responding to God's word that leads to a transformed heart. You see, it wasn't just building a wall around Jerusalem that the people needed. They needed to obey God's word. The command that was given through Nehemiah, God had instructed each family and, and we'll see this next week, to make a booth or a kind of dwelling, a shanty to live in for a week to remind them that they once lived as nomads in the wilderness. They once wandered, but now God had provided for them a home. And it was a place to celebrate. And, and I hope this is a place where we are humbled enough to celebrate God's kindness to us. Because it's only through responding in obedience to God's word that we can have that transformed heart. James 1.22, it's a simple phrase, a simple command. 
but it's at the heart so much of the life God wants for us. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Friends, if you feel like in your heart your world is falling apart, if you feel that everything you put your hands on breaks, every relationship is at peril, then I, I urge you to discover what Hebrews 1.3 says. We have a Savior who is sustaining all things by his powerful word. There's a verse that I want to close with and a story this morning to help you catch this point. There, there is a Millennium Tower that was built in San Francisco, California. Now, if you've been there, you've probably seen this tower and perhaps you know its story, but Jerry Dotson is one of the residents there. He actually purchased his apartment in Millennium Tower on the 42nd floor with his wife for, for $2.1 million for an apartment. The developers of the luxurious Millennium Tower, they laid out all the, the risk and potential defects of this 58-story building in minute detail when they gave everybody a disclaimer as they moved in. Now, this disclaimer mentioned things like the color and the texture of the marble floors may not match exactly. I think we could live with that. They mentioned that the paint on the different floors may not be exactly from the same batch or the same color. I think we can live with that. And they said in this disclaimer that the plants, the live plants, because of season and availability, they might differ on different floors. And I think they could live with that. But what they didn't mention is what nobody wanted to come to live with. When the building was built, before the doors were ever opened, it had already sunk eight inches into the ground. By the time people moved in in 2009, it was already tilting eight inches to the northwest, and in that short time had sunk 16 inches overall. After a lot of finger-pointing experts began to determine it was due to the support beams that were drilled as a foundation only 80 feet down into sand, not 200 feet down into bedrock. And the reason they did it was because it was more cost-effective not to drill that deep. Friends, it's time to count the cost. Do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to be established as the people of Israel were and see God at work within your life, your family, your work? It's time to drill into bedrock. For that building, the question is, how, how much is it going to lean until it completely falls against the next building or until it completely sinks? And for us, the question is the same for the church and for us as individuals. If we're leaning now, are we going to lean into Jesus Christ? And will we make sure our foundation is secure? You probably already know the scripture I want to share now to close. Jesus said it himself in Matthew 7, 42 to his disciples. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So today... The question isn't how strong are the winds you're feeling because you all will. 
The question isn't how severe is the storm that is in your life because we will all face storms in this life. The question is, what's your foundation? Is if your heart is bruised, if your heart is broken, if your foundation is, seems to be cracked, it's time to restore it to your heart's original design. And friends, God wants you to have a restored, a refreshed, and a transformed heart. And God spoke to us in his written word, and he spoke to us through the living word, Jesus Christ, because he loves us that much. Will you humble yourself today to approach him and say, Lord, not only do I need your living word alive in me, but God, I need to commit to understand what your will your good, your pleasing, perfect will is for me. I want to sacrifice my time. I want to sacrifice my attention. God, I'll praise you today that we have a preacher that's not going to preach from sunrise to lunch. Well, he's not going to preach six hours, but God, I can give you time when I'm not in this building to focus on your will for me. Because I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. And I just want to ask, is your foundation sure? Have you given your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? As a believer, are you building on that foundation, on the teaching that, that God has provided through men and women who've gone before, through His Holy Spirit as He wrote for us the gift of the Word? If you have a decision to make this morning, I want you to make it as we sing, but let's pray before we sing. Heavenly Father, I just want to bless you for exposing us for who we really are. More than that, for what we really are. Father, we're your creation. We're made in your image. And sometimes in our life, we built our hope on things that have just broken us. We built them on people that have disappointed us, people that have betrayed us. We built them on careers that haven't fulfilled us. We built them on hobbies that haven't really entertained us. And we recognize that we were only created for a foundation that could never be shaken. Father, for those in this room that are believers this morning, I just want to bless you once again for your strength and for being our rock, solid and sure and dependable. I want to thank you for being not only that security. God, I want to thank you for the reminder that even though the winds lash us, even though our lives can can sometimes rattle underneath the pressure of the rains and the storms. We can't be destroyed because our home is made of eternal fabric, eternal construction. And Jesus, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for the redemption you made possible. And I thank you for your word. Father, for someone this morning, if there's a need to accept you as their Lord and Savior, and to, to begin this life with you, this relationship, let them come. Just place their membership in a church that believes in the inspiration, full and true of the Bible and the accuracy of your word. Let them come and study deeply. But Father, we just ask that you would be glorified this day in every decision and in every act that we make. In Jesus' name.